why don't I pray and we'll jump in. Um, And as as I pray, by the way, Kehan, could you come up because I invited Kehan to play some music for us. And I also asked that person to honk. So you're right on cue. Thank you for that. Uh, Let's pray. Um, Father, thank you so much for, uh, thanks for this book that we've been going through. And Lord, thank you for the hope and encouragement and strength that it gives us. And I pray as we look at the very end of it today, Lord, that you would um, really encourage our hearts. Lord, give us the hope and, and the security that we need to walk through this next week. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I have invited Kehan to come play a song for us. So sit back, relax, enjoy. You might even want to close your eyes. It's a beautiful song. I promise you already know the song. So just enjoy. uncomfortable you really should learn the next note you should probably like go back to music school and try and (laughs) learn because it's a really nice finish you know that feeling that you're feeling right now that anxiety and stress and tension that you're feeling right now Uh, that that feeling when the song you know it has an ending but it hasn't been played well if you've been tracking with us through the book of revelation That's the moment that we get to right before these last two chapters. So you kind of finish chapter 19 like we did last week, and it just feels unresolved. It feels a little bit uncomfortable, uh, like an unfinished song. And so, really, that's not too far from real life, though. Like, I would guess there's probably some, some part of your life that feels unresolved. I mean, is that, maybe that's just me. But I'm guessing there's somewhere either in your own life or in our city or in the country or the world that something feels unfinished. And as we finish this series today on the book of Revelation, remember where we started. Because remember, we started out by saying that the book of Revelation is written so that Christians, no matter their circumstances, could sing hallelujah. That they could say praise God no matter what the circumstances, no matter how unfinished their life seems or the the culture they live in, the city they live in, no matter how unfinished it feels, no matter what the tension, anxiety, stress, that you could still praise God. That you could actually find peace and hope and security in God. And that actually for the Christian, there is a joy that comes not from our current circumstances, but from our future hope. And that's what this passage is going to show us, that the Christian's joy... The source of the Christian's joy is not in present circumstances, but is grounded in our future hope. And in these last two chapters, we actually, we hear the the resolve, the last note of all of history. That sort of satisfying, oh, it is finished. And so, as you're still feeling, I'm sure, the tension, because I am, the hair on the back of my neck is still up because the song hasn't finished. Just think about what are the things that you're facing? What are the ones that you're dealing with? Is it sickness? Is it loneliness? Is it culture war? Is it actual war? Is it relational fallout? Is it insecurity? What is it that you're facing that feels unfinished? 
Vamos a hacer eso. He did finish it. Well done. Thank you. <laughs> and doesn't that feel better? Yeah. Like the room feels better. And that's how we should feel by the end of the book of Revelation. So let's look at this future hope that we have and see if we can't find in that future hope a joy in the present. Um, and the future hope in, in this text, if we were to read the whole thing, is actually found in a city. Yes, it's found in a city, not on a sunny beach, not in a quiet, serene mountainside. But when you read this, you find out that heaven, the new heavens, the new earth, are, are a city. And so let's look at the city. Uh, we're going to see it in sort of three angles. First, we're going to look at the city that we want. Second, the city that we get. And then finally, and very briefly at the end, we're going to think about how do we enter into that city. Um, you know, sometimes, so let's talk about the city that we want. And sometimes when I talk to people who, uh, I, I guess the best way to say it, they don't identify as a Christian. That's not their worldview. That's not their belief system. Um, when I talk to them about Christianity, sometimes I'll ask them the question, what, what does the perfect world look like? How would you define the perfect world? Describe that. And it's striking. The answer, it's almost the same in every culture. I've asked it all over America. I asked it in the Midwest where I come from, full of hardy, family-oriented, success-driven people. I've asked it, there you go. I've asked it down in, can we get a, a whoop for the next one? Down in San Diego. I know there's some, there we go, Okay. Um, which is full of like very laid back, kind of chill people who, you know, their kind of main goal in life is just to enjoy. Um, I've asked it in places like the Czech Republic, which is one of the most atheistic countries in the world. I've asked it here in Los Angeles. And every time I ask that question, the answer is almost exactly the same time. So let's just do a quick thought experiment. Okay, can you do this with me? Um, start making a list in your head right now of what the perfect world is like. Are you starting to picture it? Can you think of the things that you would like it to be, what you want it not to be? What's on your list? Is there no more cancer? Is there no more war? Is no one lonely? Is no one sad? Is there no more lying and cheating and immoral behavior? What about death? Is there no more death? And what does it look like? Is it bright and full of glory and beautiful? What about, what about your body? Are you fit? The spare tire and the love handle's gone? In my perfect world, I've got more hair and no gap in my teeth. And these are just a few things that come up on everyone's list. Everywhere I've traveled, everyone that I've spoken to and asked that question has given me pretty much the same answer. And I'm guessing yours were similar. People who've never even read the Bible give those kinds of answers. And so the question is, why is that? Why? Why do we all think of the same things? Why do we all want the world to resolve that last note to be played in the same way? Well, I want to suggest that this is this longing or this tension that we feel, this, this desired future that we can all picture, is our longing for the city that Revelation 21 and 22 talks about. 
Because look at how it resolves. In verse 4, in chapter 21, in this city, we'll, we'll come back in a little bit to see why it's a city. But for now, just notice what happens in this city. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And so this world resolves with no more sadness, every tear wiped away, no more death. And so no, no more of that loss, that utter gut-wrenching loss that you feel when you know you'll never hear her voice or see his face again. That's gone. Look how else the tension is resolved. Chapter 21, verse 8. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. And it goes on uh, later in chapter 21, verse 27. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And so you know that... um, Maybe even that anger that you feel when somebody wrongs another person, when somebody lies, when somebody cheats, when somebody steals, when somebody murders, when somebody rapes. All of that is resolved because no one who's guilty of those things will be allowed into this city. So... The world we all say we want, the one that people the world over seem to describe in almost exactly the same way, that world, we want that world because there actually is a real city where those things are true. A future city where all the tension, anxiety, stress, and sadness of this life is resolved, where evil and wickedness is not allowed. And so the longing that you have for that city was put there in your heart by God. When he created you. And even as he's designed this world that we live in, he's put it there in your heart because there is a real city that fulfills the longing of your heart. And he's put it there so that you would look for him, so that you would seek after him. So we all, that's the city that we all want. Almost everyone pictures the same one. Uh, let's look more in more detail then at the city that we get. And this is where we're going to spend most of our time. Second point here, the city that we get And the city that we get is, uh, first, it's a place where people dwell. The city we get is a place where people dwell. Um, I love cities. You might say I'm a connoisseur of cities. When Emmy and I travel, usually we're like, where's a city that we can go to? Because we just love it. We love the buzz of a city. Uh, We love the architecture of a city, the culture of a city. To be perfectly honest, mostly it's the food of the city that we love. Uh, I love the history of the city. I love... Also seeing the cranes raised high above a city and the juxtaposition of like, here's what it was in its glory days in the past and here's what it's going to be in its glory days in the future. I love all of that. And we've been to cities all over the world, but in my opinion, and actually the opinion of several, uh, I'm sure Chicago paid for this, uh, but several articles uh, that I've seen over the last few months, uh, almost no other city has the glory of my hometown, Chicago. Um, it, It seems to always be number two on every list. Like right now, it's like number two most beautiful city in the world on some list. I don't know. But it, it does have it all. It has culture. You know, we've, it's got sports. We've got, you know, doubles. Uh, it's got architecture. It's the home of the skyscraper. It's got natural beauty. It's an amazingly beautiful river and lake. It's got the food. 
Uh, it's got everything you would want in a city. It has it. Uh, I remember actually late nights coming home from work when I was a student there, and I was walking amongst the skyscrapers and just marveling at the beauty of the city, at the lights, and just, it's just it captures your attention. I remember sunny summer afternoons on the beach, looking back towards the city and seeing the sun shining off the windows of the skyscrapers. But honestly, just a quick look at the headlines of the Chicago Tribune, and you'll find that this city that is ranked the second most beautiful city in the world is also a city with more shootings and murders than any other city in the world right now. And so a city can both be a place of glory, a place where the best and the brightest and the smartest live, but it might be for you that the city is not a place of glory, but a place of evil, of indignity, a place where crime and vice run rampant. So you might, you might be somebody who looks at a city and, and just sees the negative side. And so it might be that you read this text and you think, wait a second, heaven is a city? After all this, the new heavens and the new earth, they're a city? I mean, I thought it was going to be paradise with rolling green meadows and beaches. And that probably that, that's there too. And we know there's a sea there, actually. We know there's a river there. But in this image of the new heavens and the new earth, it's depicted as a city. Why is that? Well, look at this, verse 2 of chapter 21. Notice that it's not a holy suburb coming down out of heaven. It's not a beach beautifully dressed as a bride. It's a city. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And what is it that marks a city out from a suburb or a beach? Well, it's, it's the density of it. It's the population density. Uh, Tim Keller writes about cities this way. He says, the essence of a city is not the population's size, but its density. A city is a social form in which people physically live in close proximity to one another. Now, again, you might hear that and think, yeah, that's exactly why I don't like the city. Uh, I can hear my neighbors. They can hear me. Uh, my neighbor, if you came on a nice afternoon, is pretty much always playing Nickelback, and I don't understand why. But he is. Uh, the Bible actually tells us why many of us don't like living in close proximity, actually. It actually tells us why you find that difficult. Uh, all the way back at the very beginning in Genesis 1 and 2, the first two humans, Adam and Eve, they were living in close proximity to one another and to God. They were so close to one another, the Bible says that they were both naked and felt no shame. But then, if you know the story, they disobeyed God, they sinned, and because of that, the proximity was lost. They immediately felt shame, they covered themselves, they ran away to get away from close proximity to God. And ever since then, humankind has been trying to get away from one another. And that might even be, you know, your deepest anxiety today, fear of being truly known, fear of being close enough to other people that they actually know the reality of your life, and being found out for who you really are. But this text says that one day, if you're a Christian, it says we're all moving to the city. I mean, most of us already live in the city, but uh, one day we're all moving to this other city, close proximity, population density. Um, you know, when, you know, you've heard... You know, in heaven you get a mansion, and in our English-American vernacular mansion, we think is like a really big house with, on a big piece of property. But actually, the old word mansion is an apartment inside a larger building. And so we're all going to live in a giant apartment building. That's, just be prepared for that. But remember, 
there's no evil, so Nickelback won't be played. So we're, we're good. Um, sorry if any of you are in that band. Um, here's what that's a picture of, though. This population density. It's a picture that one day will be fully known and fully loved. The anxiety that we uh, most want, that we most need to be resolved, is actually to be fully known and yet loved anyway. Like, wouldn't it be great if I could be fully known and still loved? To be like Adam and Eve, naked and unashamed. Now, we know that that's impossible today. It's impossible in a world where there is sin and there's evil and there's selfishness. Um, and cities only highlight that. They only like bring that to the surface. I mean, all you have to do is drive home today. But in the new heavens, in the new earth, in the holy city, it's possible. In the new city, the place of close proximity to other people, all your relationships will be perfect. A place where the people who live next door to you and across the street from you or above and below you or whatever, and in, uh, they know you and they love you. And you know them, and you love them. And so why is the new heavens and the new earth a city? Well, it's because that's what ultimately resolves our deepest anxiety, which is to be fully known and loved anyway. And not just to be known and loved by other people, but to be loved by God, to be fully known by him and loved anyway. And so a city, is a, it's a place where people dwell. The new city, it's the place where people dwell. But notice also the city that we get is the place where God dwells, where people don't run and hide, they don't cover their faces, and they don't die. Do you remember the start of the last chapter, uh, last week, when God's presence shows up, everything runs away, like the earth runs away, everything runs away, but in this new city, everyone gets to dwell with God. It's the place where God dwells. And in that city, by the way, architecture, the architecture is incredible. Uh, a couple of years ago, I was able to visit Taliesin West, um, which I'm a kind of a, I like Frank Lloyd Wright. Okay, I'm a little bit of an architecture nerd, and I like Frank Lloyd Wright. And this was his design studio uh, just outside of Phoenix. And as we took the tour, I found myself being kind of, well, very emotional. Not kind of, I was very emotional for some reason. Like, I found myself emotionally overwhelmed, like almost brought to tears. And if you know me, that's not me. Uh, and I remember telling Emmy on the phone that I was like, I was sort of like just emotionally taken in by this place. Um, and here's, by the way, a couple of pictures that I took. Um, so there you go. That's, there's one. And there's another. I mean, it's just stunning. Absolutely stunning. About halfway through the tour, the guide said something that surprised me. She said that when Wright was designing Taliesin West, he actually had the Bible in mind. And that was shocking because if you know anything about uh, Frank Lloyd Wright and his life and his lifestyle, you'd think the Bible was about the furthest thing from his mind. But she said that he found inspiration for his design of this place in the Bible because he found the landscape just so, the creation of the landscape so um, drawing to him that he just he, he had to go to the Bible. That's the only place he could find the inspiration to design this place. And then it clicked into place for me. And she said that the reason I was so moved by the architecture and the landscape is that it has a certain glory to it. 
And I think that glory, it's an echo of how John describes the new heavens and the new earth. It just has this certain glory to it. Um, and the, the heavenly city, it's got this glory. It, it's beyond anything that we can imagine. Look at this. Glance, uh, chapter 21, verse 11. It shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. And then skip down to verse 18. The wall was made of jasper, and the city of pure gold is pure as glass. And then look a little bit deeper. Look at the foundations of the city. They were decorated with every kind of precious stone, with sapphires uh, and emeralds and rubies and gems you can't pronounce. And its gates, look at this, its gates are made of pearls, like giant pearls. Verse 21, the great street was, of the city was gold, as pure as transparent glass. It's a place of glory. And these things, are, they're all there to describe the quality of this place. I mean, there's never been, what, what makes a pearl, an oyster? Is that what, not a me if that's true, okay. There's never been an oyster big enough to make a pearl the size of a gate, okay? I don't think that's happened. And so the picture here is of the quality of this place, the glory of it. But not only that, it's massive. Look again at, uh, look at chapter 21, verse 15. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates and its walls. The city was laid out like a square as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and as wide and high as it is long. So 12,000 stadia is about 1,500 miles. Um, here's an example. Um, if you can go to the next slide. There you go. Uh, that's the distance between here and Houston, Texas. I picked that for you Texans, but also because it is actually 1,500 miles. Um, and so that's, that's, that's how big the city is. But not only that, did you notice uh, it's a square? And so it would actually cover the entirety of the western half of the United States, even maybe slightly going up into Canada, according to my map. So everything after Minnesota, Iowa, Missouri, Arkansas, and Louisiana, all the way to the Pacific Ocean, everything from the Canadian border down, the border of Mexico up, that's the size of the city. But notice as well in verse 16, it's not just a square, it's a cube. Look again at the end of verse 16, it says, it's as wide and high as it is long. And so it's a square. Uh, and it's a square because it's the place where God dwells. In the Old Testament, in the book of 1 Kings, when Solomon describes the temple that he built, in the middle of the temple was a room called the Most Holy Place. And the Most Holy Place is the very place where God's presence dwells, in the temple. Here's how it's described. You can look at it on the screen in 1 Kings it says, he prepared the inner sanctuary within the temple to set the ark of the covenant of the Lord there. The inner sanctuary was 20 cubits long, 20 wide, 20 high. It's a square. And so the place where God's presence dwells is a perfect cube. And the new city, the new heavens, the new earth where God dwells is a perfect cube, as long and wide as it is high, which means the temple that Solomon built was only ever meant to be a picture of this future city. In fact, in uh, Revelation 21, verse 22, it says, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. So this holy city, the new Jerusalem, it's the very place where God will dwell with his people. 
And because of that, as people won't fear, they won't cover their faces or fall on the ground. Look back at verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And then it's the very next sentence, that one that we, sentence that we all know and love from the book of Revelation, where it says, God will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more sickness, no more pain, no more death. And so don't you see that it's, it's by the very virtue of God's presence that every anxiety, every stress, every sadness, every brokenness in this life is resolved. In his presence, all sin, all pain, all suffering, all death, they flee away. And all that's left is his perfect love. And I want you to notice one more thing about the place where God dwells. It's also a place of light. Of pure, brilliant light. A place where you don't need the sun or the moon or any lamps because the glory of God, the Father, and the Son, it says, are his light. It's light. And what an amazing truth to look forward to for those of us who live in darkness. But the place we're going to dwell is a place of brilliant light. And that light radiates from the glory of Jesus Christ himself. It's even more amazing when you think about Jesus Christ, who is this great light who entered our world. Think about it this way. When Jesus began his ministry, he quoted some words from Isaiah chapter 9. They'll be on the screen here too. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. And then just think about the life of Jesus. How many of his critical moments happened in the dark? His earthly life happened in the dark. He was born in the darkness of night in a dreary stable in Bethlehem. He ate his last meal in the upper room in the dark. He was betrayed with a kiss in the darkness by Judas Iscariot. And as he hung on the cross and as he died, it says that the sky turned dark at midday. From noon until three. And then it says he was buried just before sundown as the light of day slipped below the horizon. But when is he raised from the dead? As the sun comes up on the third day, he raised, he's raised from the dead. And look at him now in this new city, chapter 21, verse 23. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it its light, and the Lamb is its lamp. And so the incredible truth of the gospel is that Jesus Christ, the, the one who lights up the new heavens and the new earth, that he entered into darkness. He entered into our darkness so that we could live in the brightness of his glory, of his righteousness. And the news of the gospel is this. It's always bad news before it's good news. It's always darkness before it's light. It's the news that every single one of us is born a sinner. Every single person is not only born into darkness, but deserves to remain in that darkness because of all the wrong things that we've thought, the wrong things that we've said, the wrong things that we've done. That's the bad news. That's the darkness. But the good news is this. You are known and loved anyway. That light has come into darkness. God knows you completely. He knows you utterly. Every attitude of your heart, every 
word you've ever spoken, every action you've ever done. He knows it all, but he loves you anyway. And that's the reason he entered into darkness. He did that to bring you light. And do you know why it calls him the lamb? It's because all through the Old Testament, the lamb was the animal that was sacrificed for people's sins. All through the Old Testament, when a person needed to atone for their sins, a lamb took their place. An innocent, pure lamb dies instead of the sinner. And so the lamb's innocence and the purity of the lamb was transferred to the sinner as the sinner's sins were transferred to the lamb who was sacrificed. That's the Old Testament. And what you find out in the New Testament is that Jesus Christ is the sacrificial lamb. He's the sacrificial lamb. And that when you accept him, when you take this news into your life as truth and you ask for forgiveness, you're forgiven. All your sins, past, present, and future, are forgiven. Your sins are transferred to Christ, to the Lamb. And all of his innocence and purity is passed on to you. And when you do that, when that happens, extraordinary things begin to happen to you. You actually begin to find yourself changing from the inside as this light that's entered into darkness begins to illuminate your own heart, illuminate your own mind, illuminate your own life. You begin to find that there's more light in your life, more hope, more freedom, more resolved tension, more resolved anxiety, or at least more resolve in the face of tensions and anxiety in this life. It's this future city that we've been looking at actually breaking into your life today. And so don't you want to live in that city? Don't you want to one day find yourself in this great city where every, every tension is resolved, every anxiety and stress removed, where there's no more sadness, no more sickness, no more death, no more mourning, no more pain, where you're no longer a slave to the things that you don't want to do? That's the city that we get. So how do we enter it? Very briefly. It's very simple. And the text tells us right here in chapter 22, verse 17. It says, the spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come and let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. And so there's the invitation right there. It says, all you have to do is come. And all you have to say is come. Come, Jesus Christ, into my life. Forgive me of my sins, all my sins, past, present, and future. Have mercy on me, a sinner, and come into my life. The one who's thirsty, come. But the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. That's how you enter the city. You take this free gift of the water of life and you drink it. I know the image sounds funny, drink the water of life, but that's exactly what the gospel is like. It's something you take into your life. It's something that as you take it in, it nourishes you, it gives you life. That's how you enter the city. Now, I haven't given you much specific application. Uh, in fact, I've given you almost no application. But that, this passage is not... That's not what it's for. It's to encourage us. It's to give us this hope. That's what the original readers of the book needed. They needed encouragement. They needed hope in the face of torture. They needed hope in the face of their families turning their backs on them, in the face of death. They needed something to hope in. And that's what Revelation is. That's what it does. It gives hope to the Christian who's under pressure. And so this is what I'll say as we 
wrap up this part of the series. You remember how you felt at the beginning when Kehan played the last line of the song, when he actually hit the last note? How everything just felt right? That's how we should feel at the end of Revelation. If you grasp the truths of this book, you can face any tension, any stress, any anxiety, any difficulty, and find the resolve to walk through it. It won't remove it. It's not going to take away the pressures of your life and make your life just perfect all the time, but it will give you the hope and the perseverance to endure what you're going through. And so this city is where Christians' hope and joy are anchored. This city is why a Christian can say hallelujah no matter their circumstances. Because we know we have a sure, a secure hope in the new heavens and the new earth that Jesus Christ is bringing with him one day. That's why you can say hallelujah. And so are you, maybe are you struggling to hold on to your Christian faith? Are you just coming back to your Christian faith? Cling to these truths. Be encouraged by this book. Be challenged by this book. Be encouraged and challenged by these words as it finishes. And this is how I'll finish, just with these words. From chapter 22. Look, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to each person according to what they have done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we long for you, the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end to come. in order that all that is wrong would be put right, in order that all who feel weak would be made strong, in order that we could enter into this city where you are its light, where there's no need of a temple to go to to be in your presence because you yourself are the temple. Oh Lord, how we long for that future. And Lord, where that future needs to break into our lives today, we ask that by your spirit, you would, you would break into our lives, Lord, that we would get a taste of that. Wherever we're feeling unfinished, wherever we're feeling broken or sad or lonely or sick, would you break through into our lives today? And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.